The Good Problem, formerly known as Do Gooder, is a podcast series unpacking the sticky art of doing good. You'll hear me, Lee Matthews, getting curious about the ethics of doing good, the dangers of doing good, and how to do better at doing good. I've been working in the doing good sector for the last 15 years. In that time, I've set up an NGO in Cambodia, won a whole bunch of awards, burnt out, had two children, learned a lot of lessons, set up a consulting company, co-founded the Rethink Orphanages Network, traveled the world, written a book, and spoken to audiences globally. You can find me at www.leematthews.com. You're listening to the second in a two-part episode with Professor Andrew McLeod. If you haven't listened to the first one, please go back and do so. The second part of this episode sees Andrew and I delve into the murky world of sexual abuse and exploitation perpetrated by aid workers. Andrew's work as a whistleblower on this in relation to the UN and the use of DNA technologies in the legal system to trace, track and prosecute perpetrators. Andrew, you're also a co-founder of an organization that focuses on stopping child rape and sexual abuse called Hear Their Cries. And the homepage of your organization states, the United Nations is by far the biggest harborer of pedophiles in the world. They prey on children with alarming regularity during their many years of UN employment throughout the world. And that's a quote from a former senior UN official. What made you go down this road? Well, I worked for the UN for many years. And let me put it in context, actually, just in case people think this is all fruit loopy. The National Crime Agency in the United Kingdom has been warning since 1999 that as we crack down on predatory pedophiles in the developed world, the predators now go to the developing world. Their words, not mine, chosen methodology to get access to children is to join a children's charity. Now, once a law enforcement agency tells you that, it resonates straight away and you say, well, that's both disgusting and logical at the same time. Of course, the predators go where they need to go to seek their prey. And as we start to put protection mechanisms around children in Western countries and still not enough protection mechanisms, they go to where there are no protection mechanisms. And if you want to have some visions in your mind about the scale of the problem, if I stand outside a primary school in Melbourne or London, with a trench coat on, within 15 minutes, someone's going to call the police. If I stand outside a primary school in the Democratic Republic of Congo with a UNICEF T-shirt on, within 30 minutes, I'm going to be mobbed by children and I'm going to have a smorgasbord of choice for the cost of a lolly. And to give you a sense of scale, when I say it's bigger than the Catholic Church, people naturally rebut against that. And I say, well, hang on, again, take the emotion out of it and think about this logically for a second. There are more aid workers than there are Catholic priests in more countries than the Catholic Church is present in with better access to children and controlling food, water and shelter. So I'm not saying there's this great grand conspiracy. I'm saying there is just this great grand opportunity that no one is really putting any effort in to stop him. Uh, How can you say the average aid worker is ethically any better than the average Catholic priest? In fact, the child abuse inquiry in Australia found that 7% of the Catholic clergy participated in pedophilia. The National Crime Agency in the United Kingdom estimates the underlying prevalence within the male community in the United Kingdom, and Australia will be somewhere similar, is about 3%. So if you say the aid industry has a prevalence just the same as the general community, it's 3%. But if you take the National Crime Agency's warnings that predators are now targeting that industry to get access to children, it might be closer to the Catholic Church of seven. So let's say it's somewhere in the middle of 5%. There are half a million aid workers in the world today, 300,000 of them are male, 5% of which is 15,000. There's your starting point assumption. Now there is extrapolations and there are assumptions in there because there's just no hard data because no one's researching it properly. But it's a starting safe assumption to say there's somewhere in the order of 15,000 pedophiles working in the aid industry today. What's worse is a couple of uh, academics funded by the Swedish government did a report and they looked at a particular war-torn country and they interviewed women and found that 50% of women had participated in transactional sex and 75% of those had participated in transactional sex with United Nations staff. 
And that city was Monrovia in Liberia. And by looking at the data, these academics estimated somewhere around about 59,000 victims at the hands of the UN in the last nine years, just in Monrovia, let alone the rest of Liberia. So the estimates that we've come out on our website, heartheircries.org, 60,000 victims in the hands of the UN in the last 10 years, are extremely conservative estimates. Now, we've been criticised by exaggerating the problem, and I can walk you through every single step that we took to come up with that estimate, recognising it's an estimate, not data, because there's a paucity of data, and every single assumption we made is horrendously conservative, and it's based on raw figures coming out of the UN alone. And let me just finish off, because I'm sure a lot of your listeners will be shocked now. Do you know two British... Sorry, one British and one Canadian academic came out with a study just before Christmas, and they have identified 261 children born of peacekeepers in Haiti and since abandoned by the UN. So that's just women and children, female, who got pregnant and who kept the children. So that's a small subset of victims. Under the age of 10, the gender profile, as best as anyone can work it out, is 50-50 male-female. So it's actually not a feminist issue. It's an issue of abuse of power and abuse of trust. There's some pretty incredible figures and pretty shocking figures. And I, I think, you know, there's been a lot of discussion around sexual exploitation and abuse in the aid industry, mostly over the past few years with, with things coming out, particularly in the UK. We've had some discussion around peacekeeping troops in the UN and their role in sexual abuse, but you've talked about actually it's the civilian members of the UN that are a bigger problem. Why? So I've been a soldier and I've been an aid worker, so I know how both of those worlds work. And it's just a question of opportunity. Soldiers go back to barracks at night. Civilian aid workers go back to their own accommodation. Soldiers are always out patrolling with their colleagues. Civilian aid workers can often be out on their own. Soldiers can't have time off to do anything without there at least being a conspiracy of silence amongst their friends, whereas the civilian aid workers can actually get their own time. In other words, the opportunity is greater. And when the opportunity is greater, the perpetrating is greater. It's, it's as simple as that, to be frank. And anyone who tries to minimise or undermine that, they're kidding themselves. And what frustrates me is not necessarily the individual perpetrator. It's the system that knows of this and chooses actively to turn a willful blind eye. You asked a moment ago why I'm interested in this. And the, the truth is because I saw it. And there's an old saying, the standard you walk by is the standard you accept. And I just couldn't walk by it. So when people say, well, what do you mean you saw it? Well, when I was working for the International Committee for the Red Cross in the mid-1990s, the rumours were around in Bosnia of what became called uh, the whistleblower scandal, where UN security staff trafficked 14, 15-year-old girls out of Moldova into Bosnia during the war, chained them up in a nightclub called Florida 2000 for the exclusive use of UN staff. That's been since turned into a movie starring Rachel Weisz called Whistleblower. And if any of you listeners don't believe a word I say, and always say to people, don't believe a word I say, Google it and check it, go and watch the movie. And remember, the lawyers got to the script. So the accusations in the movie are the mild versions of the accusations. So you I heard, first heard those rumours in the mid-1990s. And then when I was head of early warning and emergency preparedness for the High Commission for Refugees in the early 2000s, there was a series of scandals called the Food for Sex Scandals. And again, your listeners can Google that. That was where people only got access to refugee camps if they agreed to hand over one of their children for sexual favours. And I saw the documents that we were writing internally about that and sat in meetings where it was consciously decided to cover it up. Now, my last mission for the UN was in the Philippines. And the Philippines' sexual abuse is out of control. And when I saw some of this and put it up the chain to my resident coordinator, the head UN person, a wonderful woman, she put that on the list of a whole series of issues she was taking back to New York, including corruption of the national staff, laziness in the national staff, the sexual abuse that we were seeing, and the national staff were corrupt. And the easiest way to get rid of someone who's trying to clean, a, clean the system in the UN is to accuse them of racism. So my uh, resident coordinator, she was accused of racism and removed. So then I actually had no one to report any of this to. And I'm like, I, I can't sit here anymore. I got to a, a level of seniority that you can no longer justify to yourself, not my problem. So I made the decision in the old uh, Australian expression, instead of being... Um, inside the tent pissing out, I was going to go outside the tent and piss in because the more people 
who you speak to who knows how the UN works, it's unreformable because it is as dysfunctional as the member states intend it to be. It is intended to be dysfunctional. So you've effectively become a whistleblower yourself against the UN and against these practices. And the founders of Hear Their Cries were all, uh, all whistleblowers. Okay, and, and what has it been like in terms of pushback? Oh, some of the pushback is funny. You would think trying to raise the awareness of sexual abuse of children wouldn't have people angry at you, but actually it is. And it's not the perpetrators, because the perpetrators aren't silly enough to come forward and say, no, I like to keep raping children. No, it is some people who describe themselves this way on their website. So this is their own description, not mine. Left-wing academic feminists fighting for the rights for children. And one went as far as to say, we are middle-aged white men. We have no right to participate in this debate. Mm. And the dogma around this debate, like I said a little bit earlier, it's not a feminist issue. It's an issue of abuse of power. There is someone listening to this on your podcast who's tearing their hair out saying, that man's a misogynist. He doesn't understand because I haven't used the right words or the right phrase. I haven't got it 100% right. And what I find really frustrating is a lot of the activists on the left of the political spectrum, and for years I describe myself as coming from the left of the political spectrum, if you don't agree with them 100%, they will chastise you for the 2% they disagree with, forgetting that you actually agree on 98% of stuff and you should be working together. Or if you don't want to work exactly together, just support each other out in the narratives, not condemn each other. And if you go to our website, there is an organisation called Code Blue run by a campaign run by AIDS Free World, run by a woman named Paula Donovan. We've had to put out a couple of press releases countering what she said about us. And I keep saying to Paula over and over again, we're not the enemy. She says that she wants to stop sexual abuse by peacekeepers. Fine. I want to stop sexual abuse by the civilian staff. Fine. To my mind, what's logical there is, okay, Paula, you deal with the soldiers. I'll deal with civilians and let's swap information where it helps us. And what she was doing instead of saying, no, I'm exaggerating the problem. Her problem's the real problem, not my problem, which was kiboshed a bit in 2017 when under our pressure, the Secretary General came out in the uh, wings of the 2017 General Assembly. There was a high-level panel on sexual exploitation and abuse. And he said at that high-level panel, contrary to what some people believe, sexual exploitation and abuse is not a problem of peacekeeping. It's a problem of the entire United Nations system and probably bigger outside of peacekeeping. It's like, of course it bloody well is. And that's the first step. So I, I describe where we are today on the issue of sexual abuse in the aid industry. We are exactly where we were with the Catholic Church in the 1970s. That is, we are only just beginning to understand that what we're seeing is a tiny, tiny tip of a huge iceberg. I mean, the level of abuse is phenomenal. And, and, and I'll challenge your listeners on this. Next time a major natural disaster hits somewhere in the developing world, about 14 days after the natural disaster, start Googling local media about issues of sexual abuse of victims of that natural disaster because already people in positions of power will be abusing it. I challenged someone on this a couple of years ago when two cyclones hit northern Mozambique in quick succession. I said, you watch, within 14 days. And within 14 days, the reports were coming out over the distribution of food was being done in exchange for sexual favours. The problem is, when you go into environments where civil society is broken down or law enforcement is broken down, then abuse happens. Human beings revert back or a, a, a sizable minority of human beings revert back to the real bastards that are inside us. And they do it knowing that they'll never be held to account. There is no mechanism to hold these people to account. And well-meaning people like Paula Donovan will sit in their comfortable Western offices funded by God knows whom and subconsciously think to themselves, well, this is the cost of doing business or even worse, we can't threaten the aid industry. So we've got to sort of downplay this. And I'm like, look, if you want me to shut up, there's a very easy way to make me shut up. Stop raping children. Don't attack me for pointing out the problem. Fix the problem. And again, if there are listeners to this podcast who are like, this guy is a fruit loop, he is crazy, say, so, okay, Google International Development Committee of the House of Commons and download the report they did last year on sexual exploitation abuse in the aid industry. The International Development Committee of the House of Commons, that's a bipartisan committee, and their headline on their report was, the industry has been complacent to the level of complicit and no one can tell how big the scale of the problem is because there's just simply not enough data. I want to pick up on that because 
as you say, the evidence is there. You, you just referred to a report because we know it's happening, but you're implying repeatedly that, you know, people might be in disbelief around these statistics and figures. Why are we ignoring it? Why is the wider aid industry not taking action? There's a couple of reasons. First reason, I, I had a female journalist, I'm glad it was a female a journalist, asked me once, why isn't this issue getting any traction? And I said, well, you're the journalist. You tell me why you think it's not getting any traction. And she said, I hate to say it, but it's happening to little black girls in Africa and people don't care about little black girls in Africa. And as horrendous as it sounds, there is too much truth to that statement. It is something over there. So that's one. If people are disengaged from it, at least with the Catholic Church, you had mothers in rich countries starting to complain about what happened to their children. Who's representing the mothers and the children from the Democratic Republic of Congo? Who honestly really cares about the mothers and the children from the Democratic Republic of Congo? So that's one thing. The second thing is we mentioned last time that the product that many of the aid agencies sell is hope. They actually don't sell results. So what happens to the aid agency who is selling hope and comes out and says, oh, by the way, we're also raping a small number of women and children, but that's okay. That's just the cost of getting business done. To an extent, the Oxfam scandal that came out a year and a half or so ago was just really unlucky for Oxfam because they just got caught. That just came out into the public on some comparatively mild abuses. Now, this is going to ruffle some people's feathers, but the accusations against the uh, Oxfam staff were about consensual transactional sex in an environment where prostitution is unlawful. And there's a whole lot of valid and legitimate arguments around about imbalances of power and how even though it was consensual transactional sex, it's not really consensual because of the circumstances. I, I get that. But a 20-year-old woman consenting to transactional sex as is on a scale very different to an 11-year-old child forced to have sex at the point of a gun. Or to put it in the words of uh, an 11-year-old girl in Bangui, the capital of Central African Republic, when she said, I didn't have breasts yet and he still raped me. Now, that's a very different level to what's happened in Haiti. So what actually came out in the Oxfam scandal of the abuse of the Haitian women is on the mild end of the spectrum of some pretty rotten stuff that's going on. So they just got unlucky that they, they got um, exposed. The UN admits to hundreds of cases a year, and they even put it on a website. And I ask you this, how many cases of child sexual abuse would we tolerate in McDonald's every year? And I reckon the answer is zero. How many uh, examples of child sexual abuse would we tolerate at BHP or Rio Tinto every year? And I'm hesitating, I guess it's going to be zero. So why is it that we tolerate hundreds in the UN? There is a major international aid agency whose name you would all recognise currently has 132 accusations of sexual abuse against children outstanding against it just in the United Kingdom, let alone its overseas operations. And we tolerate it. And we tolerate it because we've swallowed hook, line and sinker, this bullshit about they're actually trying to make the world better. And they're not. They're selling us hope. They're selling us a fraudulent program. I'm not this anti-aid, let the world starve person, but I am. I actually want the people not to starve. I want foreign aid to work, but I'm calling bluff on it now. It doesn't work. It often causes more harm than good to the extent that for some reason we tolerate even the admitted hundreds of cases of sexual exploitation abuse each year that organisations admit to. Now think about it this way also, just to give you the scale of the problem. One in seven rapes is reported in the UK, something similar in Australia. The aid industry, what they admit to, and the UN, in hundreds of cases a year, that's the people who are brave enough to come forward. So 300 cases against peacekeepers are admitted to each year, roughly, by, by the UN. If the reporting rate was one in seven, as with the UK, those 300 real victims would represent 300 times seven because of the one in seven reporting rate. 
That's 2,100 real victims a year. But who thinks the reporting rate in the Democratic Republic of Congo is going to be the same as the reporting rate in the, in the UK? It's not. It's going to be far fewer. It's going to be one in 10, one in 50, one in 100. So you take 300 real victims and you say it's going to be one in 10. That's 3,000 victims those people represent. If it's one in 50, it's 15,000. If it's one in 100, it's 30,000 every year what is the answer is it reform within the un system is it you know un-wide safeguarding and protection training what is it no nah, we got to throw people in jail i watched a re-watched an interview recently it was an interview lisa doucette the um senior international correspondent at the bbc did with kofi annan uh, it was his last interview as secretary general 15 years ago and for the few years prior to that, there'd been a growing awareness of the amount of sexual abuse that was going on. And the UN came up with this line, yes, let's improve our safeguarding and we're going to have zero tolerance to sexual abuse, right? So Lise Doucette said to the Secretary General, come on, Secretary General, you have been saying zero tolerance for years now and nothing has changed. And he squirmed in his seat and basically said, that's right. But that interview was 15 years ago, and they're still sitting there saying zero tolerance. And now we know that there are 261 children born in Haiti, fathered by UN peacekeeping soldiers, totally abandoned. Where's this zero tolerance? And you know, most Western countries now have a thing called the child sex tourism laws. They were designed extraterritorial law to apply your law overseas. So, you know, Australian law generally applies to people inside Australia with a few exceptions. If I go to Thailand on holiday and have my way with a kid on a beach, not only have I broken Thai law, I've broken Australian law and you can hold me to account here. But that law doesn't say I'm not allowed to have sex with a child while I'm on holiday. It says I'm not allowed to have sex with a child, full stop. So it applies to aid workers as well. So what we've got to do is get prosecutors to recognise that, the, that we have the laws that exist. We're not, just not raising the awareness in the general community. So the general community is not demanding of politicians and law enforcement that something gets done. I want to go deeper into that because the first time you and I spoke, you said something that was quite fascinating to me around how you're approaching addressing this problem of child sexual abuse by aid workers, but also around abandonment and tracking and tracing of fathers. Can you talk us through the use of DNA testing and how that applies to what you're doing? So what we're doing, we're partnering up with King's College London, where I'm a visiting professor and the genetics department there together with a small lab in Texas called Othram, plus the Hear Their Cries charity I've uh, co-founded. And with the right ethical permissions, we're doing a couple of test cases with some, uh, a small NGO that works with um, women and children that have been victims of the sex industry in the Philippines. And for the children who have been born from these sex abuses, where there is a strong belief that the father is a Westerner, uh, and you can tell that by, to be frank, it's a, a mixed-race child, very visibly obvious in many cases. You extract the DNA from the child, you isolate the maternal line and the paternal line of the DNA. You take the paternal line of the DNA and then compare it with law enforcement databases then publicly available databases such as 23andMe and Ancestry.com and you find the fathers um, or you find an extended family member, triangulate backwards, and ultimately find the fathers. Now, our first test case just before Christmas last year on behalf of the two Filipino twins who are now 19 years old and great kids, uh, we found their father is a 75-year-old man who uh, lives in Milton Keynes in the United Kingdom. He's fathered eight children in three countries. And three days before Christmas last year, we got what's called a declaration of parentage out of the family division of the High Court by producing all of the evidence. And, and to be fair to the father, he consented when we um, met him and went through all the evidence. So now, as far as the law is concerned, that man is the father of the two girls, which for them is brilliant because under British law, they can now apply for British passports because under British law, they're entitled to British nationality. And we are having an ongoing dialogue uh, with the father about the funding of their tertiary studies 
and an ongoing relationship that the girls want to have with the father and with their half-siblings. That was the first test case just before Christmas. We've then tested four more kids. We've found all four fathers. One's Canadian, one's Australian, one's British and one's American. And we're just going through finding partner law firms in the other countries to make sure that we can provide the mother and the child full legal advice on what are the rights and obligations under those particular jurisdictions. Like the one of the cases we've got is a 12-year-old boy. His uh, father lives in California. He's not, he's not a great guy. You know, he's got an arrest for possession and cultivation of drugs. He's got another arrest for violence against the child, which is a very concerning issue. We've not spoken to him yet. We've not told him yet of his additional child. And the reason we haven't is we need to understand and we need to be able to give the child and his mother the advice on what rights would the father have to the child, particularly if he's not a wonderful guy. And when you start dealing with this sort of environment, you've got to be very, very careful not to, what they say, re-victimise the victim. And the last thing you want to do is put a 12-year-old child within the clutches of someone who's already had an arrest for violence against the child. Obviously, there's two two kind of elements to this. There's finding and proving parental responsibility. But the other factor is what if the mother was a minor themselves? How does that work in, in these investigations? So that's where we're ultimately going to get to as well, because where the mother is a minor, if she was under the age of 16 at the time of procreation, most Western countries now have the equivalent of the child sex tourism laws. And if I can turn up with DNA evidence that a mother was 13 years old and here's the father, it's a slam dunk. There's never been a prosecution using this technology against an aid worker there have been against some sex tourists not using this technology, but the sex tourists who have been caught in the act, so to speak. So the concept of, of charging someone for having sex with a child under the age of 16 in another country is a concept which law enforcement get um, when they're provided with the uh, appropriate evidence. Where it gets more confusing with this DNA issue is we're going to be talking about events that happened 10 years ago or 12 years ago. We can't say what time, where, we don't have photographic evidence of anything like that, but we have a child and we have a mother and we have birth certificates. And you put two and two together and say, yep, the child's 12, the mother's 24, do your maths, yes, she was 12 at the age of procreation, DNA says he's the father, off you go. And we actually had a case in the UK we were advising on, and I can't mention the names, but a person was adopted as a, a, at birth as an adult she did some research into her birth parents and it turned out that her birth mother was 13 at the time of birth. The birth father was mid-30s. The birth father was a friend of the birth mother's father. And in fact, the birth mother was babysitting for the friend at the time she fell pregnant. And uh, X number of years ago, it was reported to the police. The police decided not to prosecute. The mother, who was 13, had the child and the child was immediately adopted out. When the child, as an adult, found this out when researching her family history, her response was, I want my father charged with rape. So she went back to the police and said, why didn't you charge him X number of years ago? to which the police responded, we can't tell you you're not the victim. And this is where we started to advise her. And she, because according to the British law, at least the police's interpretation of it, the victim of rape is the woman who's raped, not the child who's born as a result of rape. And it's an interesting dilemma. So she started to advocate to have children born of rape to be included in the definition of victims of rape. But where it gets more complicated, she finally made contact with her birth mother and said, I want the birth father charged with rape. And the mother said no. So now you've got the birth mother who was raped saying, no, I don't want him charged because I put all of this behind me. The child saying, I haven't put all this behind me and I do want him charged. Whose rights dominate? The woman who was actually raped or the child who was born as a result of rape? And I said to her, look, we can launch a private criminal prosecution. We don't have to go through the police. But I really urge you to get your mother on side because it is a real ethical minefield if your birth mother doesn't agree as well. So we went backwards and forwards a bit. The birth mother ultimately did agree. And about five or six weeks ago, 
the birth father has been re-arrested by the police and charged for rape, awaiting now the process to unfold probably post-coronavirus. But it does raise a whole lot of ethical dilemmas that what at first seems really simple, wow, you shouldn't have sex with a child. Yeah, you shouldn't. But you're then dealing with consequences which impact on real people. And you take the Filipino twins I was telling you about the first case we had just before Christmas. You've also got to recognise that the father now has to tell his other family. And what does that do to that other family? So it's not a clear cut, this is an unambiguously good thing. It creates a whole bunch of competing ethical and moral dilemmas. And I imagine legal dilemmas too in terms of the liability of organisations, aid organisations. That's where I ultimately want to get to. If I, if I want to stop this stuff from happening, I can't go after the individual perpetrators. I've got to go after the enabling system. And I've said to a couple of very senior people in the aid industry, and I've been blunt about it, and you would have told, can, can find from this podcast already, I'm not a very subtle person. I just turn around and say, I'm coming for you. If I find two or more perpetrators working for your organisation, I'm going to put you on trial as a private criminal prosecution for failure to prevent and aiding and abetting by neglect. Now, I might not, might not win that first case, but it'll scare the bejesus out of people. And that's what I want to do. I want to be able to say to the perpetrators and the enablers of perpetrators or those who turn a willful blind eye, you've got to do something about this now because people like me are going to come after you. And a couple of friends of mine who, who are still very senior in the aid industry, they, they've said to me quite bluntly, Andrew, you're threatening our funding. I'm like, I am not threatening your funding. If you've got the person who rapes a child, the person who covers up the rape of the child and the person who's trying to stop the rape of the child, and you think it's the person who's trying to stop the rape of the child that's threatening your funding, I'm going to have to give you remedial lessons in ethics. Because again, I go back to that phrase I used before. You want to shut me up? Really simple. Stop raping children. While this technology and, and use of DNA technology in particular is, you know, an innovation in terms of what we're trying to look at achieving here, it's pretty obvious that it only works for female victims. Only works for female victims. Only works for female victims um, above the age of puberty and only where the perpetrator comes from a wealthy Western country. Now, why that? The Technology relies on either the perpetrator having a profile already on a DNA database or on an Ancestry.com or extended family having done so. You need a certain level of wealth before you say, oh, I'm going to spend 100 bucks on a DNA kit and find out that I've got 1.7% of my background is Neanderthal, which, you know, on my DNA test, 1.7% of my background is Neanderthal. And surprise, surprise, I have fair skin light hair. I'm susceptible to skin cancer. Who would have known? And I have the enzyme that processes caffeine faster than anything else. So I can have a double espresso at midnight and still be asleep at quarter past. No, 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 no. But if you've got a peacekeeping soldier from the Democratic Republic of Congo who's abused a woman in the Central African Republic, this technology will not work because there simply will not be enough people in the Democratic Republic of Congo who have voluntarily paid 100 bucks to do a DNA test for you to cross-sample a population. But let's start with the low-hanging fruit. As I said, we are today with the aid industry exactly where we were with the catholic church in the 1970s we're just beginning to see the scale of the problem and if i can show the problem is huge on the subset of victims females above the age of puberty who got pregnant and kept the child and where the father came from a wealthy country and people start getting shocked by those numbers and then i start showing them what a small proportion of the victims that is then we've got to get demand for change and I mean real change and I say to people when they ask me well who should we donate our money to I say there's one question and one question only you should ask an aid agency and that's this how many of your staff have you reported back to law enforcement for child abuse or sexual abuse and if the answer is zero don't give them money because zero is an unbelievable number in fact at this stage the larger the number the more credible the organization if they say we've reported 100 people, great, that means you're starting to take the issue seriously. But if you tell me you've reported no one, then I've got to believe one of two things. Either you have no perpetrators, which I just don't believe because no one's got the perfect pedophile filter, or I believe you're not taking it seriously. 
So to any of your listeners, if you're donating to any charity out there, the first thing I would do now is go back to your favourite charity and just say to them, listen, tell me, how many of your staff have you reported for child sex offences? And if the answer is zero, stop giving them money. And remember now, Australia has world-leading law on this. In Australia, not only is it an offence to have sex with a child overseas, it's now a criminal offence in Australia to fail to report an overseas child sex offence. So if ultimately I find a perpetrator that's Australian who worked for an organisation that covered it up. Now, would an organisation cover it up? I go back to the Oxfam scandal. The chair of Oxfam said herself, 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 so this is not just a male issue. Yes, we knew about it for 10 years and decided to do nothing about it. 10 years. I mean, I think this raises issues around reform. So when we're thinking about reform, we know that the biggest agencies are, you know, obviously the higher number of perpetrators, the more opportunities to perpetrate because of the more locations and the more programs. But they're also likely to be the ones that do engage in reform at a large scale and over time. Is there a risk of perpetrators doing, as you described at the start, going from developed countries to developing countries, moving to small organizations? We know that they already target small organizations that don't have policies and procedures and regulations in place. Oh, no, they target everyone. There's, there's a guy named Peter Delgleish, won the Order of Canada Award, personal friend of Justin Trudeau, was a leading child protection specialist and a major international charity for over 20 years, on retirement, went to Nepal, set up a, uh, an orphanage, surprise, surprise, turned out to be a front for trafficking. Thankfully, he's now in jail in Nepal for eight years. But no one in the agencies that he worked for over the last 20 years has gone back and examined where he was and what did he do at the time. None of them. So I would challenge you on a couple of things. You're making the assumption that some of the agencies are treating this seriously. I haven't yet to see any agency anywhere in the world that's moved significantly beyond an empty platitude of the word zero tolerance, because I'll go back to that data. How many of your staff have you reported to law enforcement for prosecution? And you know what? The grand total of aid workers prosecuted under the extraterritorial child sex tourism laws in Australia, the United Kingdom, the United States, Belgium and Germany combined. You know what the grand total is? Zero. Wow. World's most powerful statistic. Wow. Zero. Even if I'm overestimating the problem by a factor of 10. Yeah. No one in the world believes the number of perpetrators is zero. And I'll go back to the McDonald's example and the BHP example. What is the acceptable level of child rape? It's zero. And you're only going to get that when you start throwing people in jail. But you're right. When we start, and we will, gaining traction in this, predators don't vanish. A psychologist explained it to me one day. They said, you've got to think about it this way. The predatory pedophiles are not stupid and they're not sick. They've just got a bad hardwiring in their brain. And you can't control your attraction. And the psychologist said, some like tall, some like short, some like fat, some like skinny, some like blonde, some like brunette, some like old, some like young. It's, it's part of it, not all of it. It's a lot more complicated than that. But part of it is absolutely hardwired into your brain. And I challenge people and I say, Having the attraction is not a moral decision. Acting upon the attraction is a moral decision. And when people say, well, what do you mean? I'm like, okay, you're standing in a, in a cafe and a good-looking person, male or female, walks past and you go, oh, nice butt. Or you think to yourself, oh, nice butt. And come on, all of us have done that at some point in time. But do you go outside the cafe and feel the butt walking by and go, yeah, yeah, that was a nice butt? No, you don't. Because you look at something, you think, well, that's attraction, but I've got to keep that to myself when you don't act upon it. That's, that's what humanity is. And anyone who says, no, I've never thought nice, but male or female, bullshit, liar, liar, pants on fire. You know, everyone's done it at some point in their life. And our sociology and our society dictates to the extent to which we can and can't act upon those attractions. So when the psychologist bundles it all up that way, it changes fundamentally the way you tackle this problem. Because if you think you're, they're, they're stupid and crazy, you think you're going to catch them. They're not stupid and crazy. They're rat cunning because they know what they're doing is wrong and they, they know if they get caught, they're going to be punished. So they are sly, devious, careful people. That's step one. And step two, because it's a hardwiring in the brain, it's not curable. 
like a sickness can be, you can't give a pill, which means it's not something you can coach into. And in fact, one of the inadvertent negatives of the mandatory reporting laws is if someone has this attraction and is seeking assistance, it's very difficult for them to do so under the mandatory reporting laws because they're not confident that the medical assistance that they might be seeking can be kept confidential from law enforcement. I was just going to add to that. I think it's also important to note that not everybody that is attracted to children acts on that. I want to shift the focus a little bit back to you to kind of wind things up a little bit, but can you tell me what is it about your work, Andrew, that you're naturally drawn to? And what do you find most challenging? I like making change. We spoke in the earlier podcast about what motivated me at the very beginning was Michael Tate's speech um, saying having a law degree doesn't grant you a happy life and a wealthy existence. It imposes on you an obligation to use your skills for the betterment of other people. And I explained the narcissistic and arrogant side of my Uh, culture attracted me to the aid industry because that's where I thought I could do the most good, go to the worst places in the greatest need. Well, to be frank, children abused by the aid workers are the most vulnerable and the most voiceless people on the face of the earth. The work that I did in the background to get the International Development Committee of the House of Commons report up and running, great. The work I did in the background to get the Secretary General to admit the problem is bigger outside of peacekeeping, that's great. And there's a couple of lessons from that. I'm arrogant enough to think I can change British government policy and make the Secretary General of the UN jump. And in this small area, I kind of have. But it's just the start of a process, which is a message to pass to anyone. You know, that old saying, one person can't make a difference. Bullshit. Yes, you can. You've just got to determine what scale, where and how and and what drives you. And this is a funny thing because hear their cries. We don't ask for donations from people. We actually fund it out of our back pockets. So this is not you know, some skeptics say to me, oh, you're just getting paid to do this. It's like, hell, like hell I am. I actually fund it. But it, it is, uh, my best mate keeps on saying to me, this is just nuts, Andrew. You're not going to be able to afford a retirement. I look at him and smile and say, well, you're going to have to keep me afloat then, aren't you, when we're 80? And he knows that's true, which is why he's like, go, go and get a real job, Andrew. It's too important and it's too fulfilling. So there's a, there's a selfless side of it and there's a selfish side of it as well in that I get, an enormous feeling of purpose to think that in a small way we're moving this issue. We're not going to let this issue just be swept under the carpet again. And one of the things we're doing before founders of Hear Their Cries is we're finding 20, 25, 30-year-olds who are keen about this and bringing them in because we recognise very strongly that like the Catholic Church, I keep on talking about the 1970s, 1970s is 50 years ago. Will there be people talking about the problem of sexual abuse in the aid industry 50 years from now? You betcha there will be. This is not a quick fix. So we've got to set up a system whereby it lives beyond us. And perhaps that's an answer to my next question, actually. It's one I ask all my guests, and it's a a bit of a philosophical question. What do you think the greatest social challenge of our time is? And when we talk about that, it's something that future generations would look back on and wonder what on earth we were thinking. The answer to that question is necessarily subjective. Different people will have a very different answer to that. Some people will say it's female genital mutilation. Some people will say it's wage equality. Some people will say it is bringing the world out of poverty. Some will say it's climate change. Some will say it's education. Some will say it's health. Some will say it's better public transport, yada, yada, yada. So it's a fancy way of avoiding answering your question. (laughs) So you don't have an answer? You don't believe it's the thing that you're fighting for? No, because um, there are enough things that need ongoing fine-tuning or radical change in the world that you've got to find the thing that, that, that ticks for you. Now, for me, the thing I'm doing is child abuse in the aid industry. Does that make it the most important issue in the world that everybody should be concentrating on? No. Enough people should be concentrating on to try and fix it. Someone else can think about climate change. Someone else can think about prison recidivism rates. Somebody else can think about domestic violence. Now, do I think domestic violence is an issue? Absolutely. Do I do anything about domestic violence? No. Why not? Because I've got 24 hours in a day and I've got to choose where to put my pressure. And there are plenty of activists dealing on domestic violence. And I trust other people can make change as well as me. Okay. If you could tell the world something right now and know that every single person would hear it, what would it be? I would tell them, despite all of the issues, the world is in better shape than we think. 
2019, by almost any quality of life measure, was the best year in human history. It was the highest number of people as a proportion of the population had access to water, highest proportion of the population had access to electricity, highest completion rates of primary school and secondary school in human history, lowest infant mortality in human history, lowest maternal mortality in human history, highest literacy rates in history, fewest number of people as a percentage of the global population died in wars and the fewest number of people since recording started died in terrorist acti activities. So even though all the naysayers are out there, pick your data point, 2019 was a very good year. And one of the things that frustrates me is in public dialogue, we talk a lot more about what's going wrong than what's going right. And there's a lot going right in the world today, even with the pandemic going on. Tell me about someone who you think is doing a lot of good in the world right now. It depends on what you define as good and what the outcome of good is. And, and I'm struggling to get my brain to catch up with a question because I've then got to say to myself, what does a good world look like? And then I start to ask, well, who's driving this in that world? And a good world looks like to me a greater understanding and tolerance of different ways of doing things, which is harder than it seems because most liberal left people in the Western country interpret that means more people living like me. It's like, actually, no. It's you tolerating people who live radically differently from you in a way that you wouldn't want to live. It is a world where you look at a fundamentalist Muslim and say, you can be fundamentalist Muslim, just don't impact it on me and I'm not going to throw my atheism at you or a Buddhist or a Hindu or you know, even more challenging. Chinese culture is very different from an Australian culture. In the Chinese culture, collectivism is more important than individualism, which is hammered into us in the Western world, which means in the Western world, we like our individual freedoms, but how are we going to solve climate change if we don't do it from a collective mindset? So we're used to, through our media and politicians, of looking at the Chinese way of doing things, just as an example, and saying, wow, aren't they horrible? It's like, actually, there are some aspects of their culture that are good as well. There are some aspects of their culture that are not. But the question about tolerance is allowing other people to live in a way differently from how we would live. And that's difficult because that means by definition, you've got to accept other people living in a standard that you would not accept for yourself. So it's very, very complex. So that sort of good world comes from more people traveling and more people seeing how other people live and understanding that the message that you've got from your teachers, your media and your politicians is only one perspective of that. Now, when I spoke to people in Central Asia about democracy in Central Asia, they looked at me like I'm from Mars. And they're like, why would we want that? We've never had it. We don't have it now. We didn't have it under the Soviet Union. We didn't have it under the Khanates. We didn't have it under the Mongols. What the hell are you talking about? And besides, democracy gave you Donald Trump and Brexit. You're sitting there, you're going, yeah, they've got a point. So it then comes back and says, well, who's out there fostering more travel, more tourism and more engagement? And they're the people that are doing good. Kentiki, Flight Centre. There's many people that would argue with you on that. But... Oh, I know. But that's the point, isn't yeah. it? And that's exactly the point that I'm making. This is my subjective yeah, opinion. And I can see people getting their heckles up and going, climate change, emissions, aeroplanes and human rights and da-da-da-da-da. Remember, I'm a human rights lawyer. You know, I've been in a genocide. I know what the rough end of that is. But the hardest thing about human rights is to tolerate someone choosing to live in a way that you won't. Otherwise, you're imposing cultural hegemony on everybody. Absolutely. Andrew, where's your favourite place on earth? Here, MCG. Melbourne. No, MCG. Literally the ground. How many stadiums in the world hold 100,000 people or more so that rules out all of Africa, where supporters are not divided by who they support. So that rules out all of Europe and all of South America, where it's still affordable enough for a family to go. So that rules out all of North America, where 14 and 15-year-old girls can rock up to mum and dad and say, hi, mum, hi, dad, I'm going to a mass public event with 100,000 people and no adult supervision. And mum and dad say, fine, dear. And I challenge people. When we're allowed to go to the football or the cricket again, go to the MCG and sit there, lean back and look around and say, where else in the world can 100,000 people enjoy, particularly if it's football, a high testosterone violent game in harmony? And how many riot police are there separating supporters when we leave the MCG? 
None. I took a group of Indonesian diplomats to the MCG once, 30 of them. I said, you really want to understand Australia? Watch the crowd when we leave. 50% of the people are happy. 50% of the people are unhappy. There's no riots. There's no violence. Really, we make a big deal when one or two people get beaten up in a crowd of 100,000, as we rightly should, because it's so against our culture. And I say, watch the number of teenagers that are there without adult supervision. It's astonishing what we've managed to build in that cultural space. And I'll finish that description with the 2010 grand final, Collingwood versus St Kilda. I'm a mad Collingwood nut. I still have my own teeth. Now, the first game was a draw. So we're sitting there. It's a high testosterone game. It's the, it's the last game of the year. It's close. The score's level. The final siren goes and there's all this built up pressure with a tie where the rule is we come back next week. And I, as the Collingwood supporter, turn around at the St Kilda supporter next to me with all this built up aggression. And the St Kilda supporter looks at me and he says, see you next week, mate. This happens nowhere else in the world than the MCG. It is unique. And that word is so overused by people because there's something about our culture that we have created that that happens and it happens nowhere else. And for our listeners, the MCG is the Melbourne cricket ground in Melbourne, Australia. Are you reading any books at the moment? No. Nope. I'm writing a couple, but I'm okay. not reading any at the moment. Podcasts? Do you listen to podcasts? Yeah, I do. I, um, I'm a news junkie, so I listen to ABC, AM and PM. I listen to BBC News. I listen to from our own correspondent that I uh, generally like, and I listen to the Economist's weekly podcast as well, and I tend to listen to those on my uh, morning run or power walk. Excellent, excellent. Andrew, I want to thank you for what has been a very epic conversation is the only word I have for it. You have shared a lot of information that I'm sure a lot of people haven't considered or thought about. And I know I'll certainly be looking up a lot of the things that you said to find out more. And I encourage my listeners to do the same. Do you want to just share your website again? Yeah, uh, org. It's here as in ear, H-E-A-R, there as in belongs to you, T-H-E-I-R, cries, C-R-I-E-S, heartheircries.org. You can also come to my website, andrewmcleod.org as well. That's M-A-C-L-E-O-D. Uh, if you go to MC, it goes to a Canadian photographer. <laughs> well, thank you, Andrew. You've been wonderful and I hope to see you again. I very much look forward to it, Lee, and thank you very much for your time. Thanks for listening to the Good Problem Podcast. Do you want to learn more about doing better at doing good? I work with leaders from the business, nonprofit, and philanthropic sectors to achieve aligned, ethical, and sustainable impact. I also offer coaching and mentoring to individuals and small business owners on how to integrate purpose and create positive impact. To find out more, follow me on Instagram at underscore Lee Matthews or check out my website at www.leematthews.com. Don't forget to subscribe and share.